Welcome to the teachings of Pastor Mike Yost of the Springs Calvary Chapel in Habern, Idaho. Please join us as we study the Word of God. This morning, we're continuing on in our study through the Gospel of Luke. We are with Jesus in the temple right before he gets crucified, and he's going to explain what's about to happen and what is going to happen in the future until he comes back. So you can be turning in your Bibles to Luke chapter 21. We're going to pick up at verse 25, but as you're turning, I just want to kind of maybe bring some of this into focus for you if I can. You know, I, I like to hunt, and we're putting in for tags and trying to figure out where we're going to go hunt and all this. Even though it's months off, I'm already looking into the future and kind of anticipating what I might put in the freezer. And uh, one of the things that helped me tremendously in this past year was I, I got better optics, okay? Optics, right? Binoculars, scopes, those kinds of things. And uh, one of the things, a, a, a dear friend uh, blessed me with a new scope. I used to have a nine power scope. Now I have a 16 power of scope. Okay? What that means is that I have better resolution. It's better glass, better optics, better magnification. So now when I have a tag that says, you must harvest a certain gender and it must have you know, antlers, then I can tell the difference between a buck tine and a bush twig when I'm looking out across those couple hundred yards. Because if I pull the trigger and there ain't no tines on that, I, I can get in trouble. Well, we can get in trouble in the scriptures when we look to them, but we don't have clear resolution. We're not seeing distinctly. Here at the Springs Calvary Chapel, we believe that God says what He means, that He means what He says, and we look at His Word and we use a hermeneutic, which is a, a word that describes how we approach His Word, how we understand His Word. And we use what is known as a literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic, which is to say we take His Word at face value. And words matter, okay? As we were talking last week, as we got into chapter 21, Luke is telling about the last days. We use a fancy word, eschatology, things that are going to happen in the last days. And Luke tells this, but it's not the only time that Jesus, I should say Jesus tells these things, but it's not the only time Jesus did this. We see in Matthew and Mark, Jesus giving fundamentally the same explanation known as the Olivet Discourse. Here, Jesus is in the temple. There, he's across the Kidron Valley and up on the slope of the Mount of Olives looking back on the temple. But for starters, we can clearly see different group of people, okay, different time and location, same message. And it's important when we look at the Word of God and ask ourselves, what is God saying? First, we understand who is God, and then we want to be clear, who is he talking to, and what would it mean to the people that he was talking to in that specific time and place, in order that we get a proper, clear, fully resolved understanding of what Jesus is trying to tell us. Now, I had also made the point last week that Luke tends to look at some of what he's, what he's writing or recording that Jesus had having to do with things in the present and the near future. And we discussed last week the events leading up to the destruction of the temple. There were two main questions that the disciples had for Jesus. Jesus, they were looking at the temple, isn't that just fantastic? And Jesus says, not long from now, not one stone will not be standing upon another, right? That happened in a siege of the, of the city of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., and Titus, the general, gave strict orders to the soldiers that they were not to destroy the temple. I mean, it was nice, you know, we're going to inherit this thing, don't mess it up. But one of the soldiers, according to Josephus, a historian, in kind of a drunken frenzy or whatever, threw a torch in. 
Now, the temple is built out of beautiful limestone, a just amazing structure. But if you read, like in the book of Solomon, I was reading this morning in my devotions, it talks about all the cedar paneling and all the cedar beams and the cypress flooring and the olive wood, cherubim, and all the different furnishings, and they're all overlaid with gold. And what happened is when that torch went into that temple, the whole thing caught fire. And all the gold melted and went into the little seams and cracks of all these stones. And then the soldiers, well, we've ruined the thing now, but we can't just leave the gold there. They didn't leave one stone upon another, just as Jesus predicted would happen. Just as Jesus is telling them here in Luke chapter 21. These things are about to come to pass. I'll pick up at 21 verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, those who are in the midst of her depart, and let not those who are in the country enter her, for these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. So much of this was written by the prophets. Jesus is just quoting the word, his word, and explaining to them this is about to happen. And in fact, there came one day during the siege where they left the east gate open, the Christians who had nothing left to lose, they had been stripped of all their possessions, property, whatnot. Man, the door's open. We're out of here. I remember what he said on the temple that day. We don't want to be part of this. And then they closed the siege back up, and over a million Jews perished in this siege, okay? Uh, a time of distress that was prophesied. Um, and it ends in verse 24, And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations dispersed. It's a fancy word we call the diaspora, where the Jews lose their homeland and are now just intermingled amongst all the nations. And yet, while they were in these nations, they never lost their identity. For over 2,000 years, they remained in their, their groups. We know them as ghettos. That's where we get the word ghetto. And they would stay together and worship God. Um, and so, this happened, and it says, in Jerusalem, into Jerusalem will be a led away in captive into all nations, and Jerusalem uh, will be trampled by Gentiles, and they'll tell the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. The times of the Gentiles. As Jesus is speaking to this crowd gathered in the temple, the pilgrims at Pentecost, right, this great feast, and everybody's there, and Jesus is explaining, it's the Passover. You're going to crucify, or you're not going to crucify, you're going to sacrifice a lamb, okay, in a memorial of what God did in delivering you out of bondage and slavery to Egypt. And this he would then institute and commemorate in the Last Supper that he is that Lamb of God, that sacrifice for us. Christ is our Passover. And they're gathered there looking at all these things, and he's telling them this is going to happen, but there's a time now coming known as the time of the Gentiles, the goyim, I told you last week. It's kind of a dirty word on the lips of a Jew. That means the Gentiles. Anybody that's not Jewish is a goyim. And this is the time when now they're going to rule the world. You've been dispersed into all these nations, and they're going to rule in the world. In the book of Romans, in chapter 11, it talks in great detail about Israel being that root, that stock of that religion, that faith that God would use to bring people to himself. And in this, Israel would be broken off. The branch would be broken off, and then the goyim, the Gentiles, would be grafted into that root, that root of faith, the faith of Adam, the faith of Noah, the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Gentiles would be granted in. But then he said, what about the, the Jews? Is, is he done with them? And he goes on in the explanation in Romans chapter 11. No, no, just like you were grafted in, they can be grafted back in also. And it's a wonderful explanation of what God is doing in history. And so here Jesus is laying these things out. There's going to be a time where you're going to be scattered. Your Messiah is going to be crucified. The Gentiles will rule the world, but that's not the end of the story. Lots of information, lots of good things that are going to happen here. So we come to chapter uh, 21, verse 25, where we pick up, and there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars, and on the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring. 
men's heart failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. He says, now, when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. Now, remember I said we are going to use a literal, grammatical, historical, hermeneutic uh, interpretation. We want to look at a couple things here, but he's talking about the signs. This is the answer to the questions that the people gathered there had. They asked him, when will these things be? That was the first answer up to verse 24. And what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? So Jesus shared with them, you're going to be surrounded, nations are going to come up against you and all this kind of stuff. But if you're, you know, pregnant, uh, woe to you. If you're on a rooftop, come down, flee, and all that kind of stuff. That was the when. Now comes the signs, okay? In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22 through 24, I, I quoted a little bigger piece out of this, but in 1 Corinthians 1, 22, we read, For the Jews request a sign. Show me the sign. How am I going to know if what you're saying is true? Little tidbit, Christian. Every time God gives us a sign, every time God performs a miracle, it's always to back up what he's already told us. We always put his word first. We don't wait for a sign to find out if the word is true. The word is always true. You can take it to a bank, even if you don't have a sign. You've got a Bible in your lap, read it, believe it, live it, and you'll do just great, with or without the miracles. But God's gracious. God is good. God loves to show <laughs> that he knows the end from the beginning. And he gives us signs and he gives us wonders. But the Jews, they got the, the, the cart before the horse. They want to see the sign. If I see a sign, then I'll listen to what you have to say. You might have that with family members, right? You gather together for picnics, potlucks, barbecues. You're telling them about Jesus and they're like, well, if you'll show me a sign, maybe I'll listen to you. It's like it doesn't work that way, Okay. Jesus Christ is the Word made flesh. He is God. And when Jesus speaks, this is where we step in and obey. And then in obedience, often we'll see all kinds of wonderful signs, okay? But this is what the Jews do. They seek after a sign. Greeks, they seek after wisdom. Well, unless I can figure it out, unless you can prove it to me intellectually, I'm not going to buy into that Christian hocus-pocus stuff right? It's like, yeah, you're, you're trying to do it intellectually, but it's not done intellectually. It's been done on the cross. And you're going to have to see it and receive it. And then as you receive it, you take it, you own it, it becomes part of who you are in your heart. All of a sudden, things be clear and you understand what this is all about. The Jews request a sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, that's you and me, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So fundamentally, it always comes down to Jesus Christ, okay? When you put your crosshairs on anything in life, whether it's family or finances or fun or, or whatever you're doing, if you're not seeing Christ through the cross hairs, you don't have good resolution. You're missing the picture, okay? And, and, and this is kind of what we're seeing here, okay? So it says, until the time of Gentiles are fulfilled. There's coming a day when God will finish his work on the earth through the church, and then we will be taken out. It's known as the rapture, and he'll begin working again with and completing that which he began with the Jews. Again, I heartily recommend to you Romans chapter 11. I could teach that chapter this morning, right? And that would fit into it very good. But for commentary, use the Bible as your commentary on the Bible. 
So I won't go there, but until the time of the Gentiles, and then the clock starts again, there's the rapture, and then comes the tribulation, and after the seven years of tribulation, Christ returns and reigns and rules on the earth, okay? Fundamental there. So going on, there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, in the stars, and the earth, distress of nations with perplexity of the sea, and the waves roaring, and men's hearts failing from fear, and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth. I know you were looking down reading your Bible. Now look at me and I'll say it again. Those things which are coming on the earth. You, you know why I did that? It's basically, it's a little bit of theater, but that's what Walter Martin would do every time he read this verse. Some of you may have known or heard of Walter Martin, a fantastic theologian. Uh, he's now in with the Lord in heaven, wrote so much about cults and all different kinds of things. But in this passage here, he firmly believed that what this is saying, these uh, signs in the heavens, right, and things which are coming on the earth, he would always say, well, that's talking about alien invasion, people coming to the earth. And uh, people like uh, Chuck Missler, um, Mark Eastman, some of the great eschatologists, some of the great preachers of end times, they would always tell him, Walter, don't do that. You're going to discredit your ministry. People are going to think you're a little bit off, you know, when you go there. And I'm just telling a story of Walter and Chuck and uh, <laughs> these guys. But isn't it interesting in the days that we live, all of a sudden, all of this alien stuff is getting full headlines. Now, I was taught early on as a Christian because I was wondering, are there aliens? Well, of course they're aliens, okay? Anybody that's not from here is an alien, that's all, okay? Um, but scripturally speaking, I firmly believe you can do your homework on this. I can't make a iron tight case for this, but I do believe that what we see as alien is really demonic manifestation. And the reason that it's being sold to us as so prevalent in the world today, it's part of the way that the world is going to explain away the rapture of the church, okay? Now, in this, maybe I have just discredited my ministry in your opinion, but I would tell you, do your homework. Go look. I don't know that this is that, and again, this, I'm just telling you what Walter Martin used to say, but in looking at this passage right here, there's going to be signs, okay? You want to find the signs? You go to Las Vegas. I think there's one in somebody's backyard right now, you know, <laughs> something like that. And I'm just, that's meant to be funny, okay? But who knows, right? Uh, and all these things, right? Stars, uh, signs in the sun, the moon, and stars, and on the earth, the stress of nations with perplexity. Nobody's going to know what to do. Everybody's going to be, what, what's, I don't know, nobody. Well, where's the experts? Where's the scientists? Where's the, I don't know, they don't know. Nobody knows. What's going on? We're so perplexed. The sea and the waves roaring and men's heart failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now, to be very clear, as Jesus speaks this to the crowds gathered in the temple there at Passover, we're talking about something they have never seen in their lifetime. And while he has described this siege that's going to come upon Jerusalem, these things historically, even to this day, have not happened according to any historical record. Here, Jesus is clearly talking about something distant future, not near future. And it's something that we need to be mindful of. Um, interesting little passage, and you've read this a thousand times, but listen to it just a minute this way. Putting on the whole armor of God, Ephesians chapter 6. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. This is what's happening. 
God is going to shake this all up. And this kingdom of Satan, where he is oppressing the world, is going to be shaken. It's going to fall. In Hebrews chapter 12, we begin reading at verse 25, See that you do not refuse him, God, who speaks, for if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth during the time when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness, but now has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only earth, but also heaven, the powers in the heavenly places. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken. As of the things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may be remain. The kingdom of God, okay? The kingdom of heaven, that can't be shaken. Verse 28, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. And so Jesus is telling these people gathered there at that Passover 2,000 years ago, these things are happening on the near horizon. You want to prepare. These things are happening on the distant horizon. I'm putting this out there so that the whole world will know that from beginning to end, I wrote the book. Okay, you can take it at face value and bet your life on it. Okay, he says, then you will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And uh, not great glory, great glory. Okay, <laughs> I heard that the Angel Stadium, I guess because they were getting so much rain this year, canceled the Harvest Crusade that they always have at Angel Stadium. So they had to take it indoors. But there was like, I can't remember, 3,700 people that came down to give their life to Jesus just, was it last week or something, right? And, and God is still on the move. Amen, right? Amen. Great glory, okay? So the Son of Man is coming in a cloud as we will see Him. We will be gathered together to meet Him in the air, okay? Um, and uh, coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when you see these things, okay? So now he's speaking to a different group of people. This is a group of people that's going to watch the heavens shaken and the signs and the sun and the moon and the stars, things that have not happened yet in history. They're yet to happen. They could be happening to us today, okay? We're, it, it's imminent. It could happen at any minute right now. But when you see these things begin to happen, okay? Again, back to the grammar. Begin. It's not yet. Not yet, but it, it's going to be a sign that it's pretty close because these things are beginning to happen. When you see these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads. Don't be downcast, downtrodden. Don't be shuffling along all dejected and depressed and confused and perplexed. And what on earth is going on in this world? Oh, man, what are you doing? He's got to be here somewhere. He's coming back. Now, soon, right? Lift up your head. Your redemption draws near, okay? It's almost time. It's coming, okay? So then he goes into a parable with this group gathered there at the Passover. He spoke to them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. So this has been nicknamed the parable of the trees. Now, some people will call it the parable of the fig tree and the fig tree often is used as a symbol of Israel, and I believe it's being used here as well. Symbolically, the fig tree would represent Israel, but it's not only Israel that Jesus has in view in this parable. It's all the trees, okay? So he's not talking just about the nation of Israel. He's talking about all nations, all the trees. He spoke to them a parable, look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they are already budding, you see and know for yourselves that summer is now near. How many of you guys get that, right? Yeah, I, I mean, if you've ever had a tree and it's got a fruit tree, you go out and you see after winter the leaves are sprouting, after the leaves come the flowers, after the flowers come the buds, and when the buds come, what's next? Fruit, right? 
Summer's about here. It's time for the harvest. We're getting ready for the harvest. Woo-hoo! I'm excited about the harvest. I'm out in my orchard all the time now, working with our trees and covering them with nets from the deer and the birds, and I want to have some harvest, right? But they're budding, and they're bearing fruit. The fruit is swelling. It's summertime. This is what Jesus is saying. The nations, Israel and all the nations, are budding, swelling, about to bear fruit. Now, I won't go now. I'll wait just a minute. Hold that. No, no, hold that thought. I'm trying to develop this so that it makes sense to you. I'll just keep on reading and I'll see if I can back into it again. So also you, okay, we get that. So also, so you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. You know who he's talking to right there? Me, you, us, okay? He shifted gears from the people in the temple to those people that would hear these words as he's speaking them, knowing that they're going to exist into eternity. He's speaking this for the crowd that would be listening, such as us right here this morning. You also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Hallelujah. Jesus is coming. The kingdom is near. We're about ready to go home. Amen? Hallelujah. This is good stuff right here, right? This is encouraging. Don't be discouraged or downcast. Lift up your head. Your redemption draws nigh. He's almost coming. I love what Jan Markell says on her Olive Tree Views uh, uh, podcast. If you don't know her or haven't followed them, I highly recommend Jan Markell, Olive Tree Views. But one of the things she's been saying lately is, when everything looks like it's when the world looks like everything is falling apart, it's not. It's all falling together. Just like it's supposed to. This is exciting stuff, okay? I don't like seeing digital currency or all the the wacko CRT, LGBTQ, blah, 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 blah. But you do know all these things are pictures that were about there. It's time, okay? And so it's exciting stuff. Uh, know that the kingdom of God is near. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will by no means pass away. Isaiah the prophet, 700 years earlier, had written, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And as Jesus was standing that morning, the word of God, just alive, in the flesh, amongst them, about to be crucified, buried, and then resurrected, because the word of God stands forever, okay? And so we have so much comfort in this. Now, in this passage right here, I'm going to camp on this thought for just a couple minutes, and um, it's probably, if there's, a, if there's a nut to everything I'm saying this morning, it's going to kind of build out of what I'm about to go into right here, because it's so important for us to hear, church, in these days that we are living. So many people have taken this passage and done things with it that I don't believe are warranted by a literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic through a fair and honest interpretation of the words as they've been laid down here. Now again, I'm trotting into territory that some people may take exception. That's fine. Do your homework. Talk to me. We can talk, okay? But I do my homework, okay? I've been doing it for years, and this is my settled position. Any Christian, okay, side note. If you were to have it proven to you beyond a shadow of a doubt that some tenant of your faith was wrong, would you be willing to go to God and say, help me understand this. Let me see the truth. Because for such, we were all in that boat at one point. We didn't understand. And truly, as we're growing, growing closer in the knowledge and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, there are times where I might be wrong, you might be wrong, and we can come together and we can go to the Word of God. Okay, We can get out our optics 
And we can resolve in and clearly see what God is trying to say here and do this together. And we both grow, iron sharpening iron. But in my studies, this is kind of where I've come to, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. So, to one degree, Jesus said this. If you want to dis disagree with it, then you're disagreeing with Jesus. And you need, to, you need to talk to him and clear this up. This passage has been used heavily because of this one word, generation. This generation. What does that mean, the word generation? A lot of people have taken this passage, Luke chapter 21, Mark chapter 20, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 24, and Mark in the Olivet Discourse and built a teaching that is known as preterism. Now, there's a $5 word you really don't need, but let me explain it to you. I'm actually going to read off of some notes that I've cut and pasted so that hopefully what I say makes sense to you. Okay? According to preterism, all prophecy in the Bible is really history. The preterist interpretation of Scripture regards the book of Revelation as sim a symbolic picture of first century conflicts, not a description of what will occur in the end time. The term preterism comes from the Latin preter, meaning past. Thus, preterism is a view that the biblical prophecies concerning the end time have already been fulfilled in the past. The preterist movement essentially teaches that all end times prophecies of the New Testament were fulfilled in 70 A.D. when the Romans attacked and destroyed Jerusalem. Preterism teaches that every event normally associated with the end times, Christ's second coming, the tribulation, the resurrection of the dead, the final judgment, has already happened. Preterism teaches that the law was fulfilled in A.D. 70 and God's covenant with Israel was ended. The new heavens and new earth spoken of in Revelation 21.1 is, to the preterist, a description of the world under the new covenant. Just as a Christian is made a new creation, we read out of 2 Corinthians 5.17, so the world under the new covenant is a new earth. This aspect of preterism can easily lead to a belief called replacement theology. Okay? So the preterist would say any prophecy, speaking of the return of Christ, resurrection of the dead, already happened 2,000 years ago, 70 AD. And all you're reading is a history book. Okay? And anything that you read, say, in the book of Revelation, or even some of the Old Testament prophecies of the millennium and the last days, book of Isaiah, Joel, so many of them are full of it, Ezekiel, Zechariah, that those are all just history. They, they've already happened. That's what a preterist would say, because they view everything that it's already happened in the past. And it often leads to what is known as replacement theology. Replacement theology, it's also known as supersessionism. Bunch of $5 words here. You can throw them all away when you get home. <laughs> Replacement th theology essentially teaches that the church has replaced Israel in God's plan. Adherents of replacement theology believe the Jews are no longer God's chosen people, and God does not have specific future plans for the nation of Israel. Among the different views of the relationship between the church and Israel are, and here they are, the church has replaced Israel. That's replacement theology. The church is an expansion of Israel. That's known as covenant theology. Or the church is completely different and distinct from Israel. That's dispensationalism and premillennialism. If you go to our church and our website and you look at our statement of faith, we will say these are the positions that we hold, dispensationalism and premillennialism, that God is not done with the nation of Israel. The church has not replaced Israel. The church hasn't inherited all the covenants and promises that were supposed to go to Israel, but Israel got broke off from the branch, and now we're it. 
Read the book of Romans. God puts them back in. He's not done with them yet, okay? The whole Bible is covered with this. Replacement theology teaches the church is the replacement for Israel, and that covenant theology teaches that the many promises made to Israel in the Bible are fulfilled in the Christian church and not in Israel. The prophecies in Scripture concerning the blessing and restoration of Israel to the promised land are spiritualized or allegorized. You can kind of almost put in that nowadays AI chatbots. Okay? They've taken the truth, they've taken the word, they've taken the grammatical, historical, literal word and twisted it to fit their belief. Okay? Spiritualizing and allegorizing into promises of God's blessing for the church. Major problems exist with this view, such as the continuing existence of the Jewish people throughout the centuries. They're still here. What are you going to do with that? And especially with the revival of the modern state of Israel. Okay? May 1948, May 14th, Israel is a nation again. We didn't see that one coming. If Israel has been condemned by God and there is no future for the Jewish nation, how do we explain the supernatural survival of the Jewish people over the past 2,000 years despite the many attempts to destroy them? How do we explain why and how Israel reappeared as a nation in the 20th century after not existing for 1,900 years? They're the only people and the only nation in all of history that this happened to. The only ones. The view that Israel and the church are different is clearly taught in the New Testament. Biblically speaking, the church is distinct from Israel, and the terms church and Israel are never to be confused or used interchangeably. We are taught from the Scripture that the church is an entirely new creation that came into being on the day of Pentecost and will continue until it is taken to heaven at the rapture. Cross-references that, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 through 17. Contrary to replacement theology, dispensationalism, that's a fancy $5 word, meaning that God works at different times with different people in different ways. God worked with Adam and Eve different than he worked with Noah, than he worked with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, than he worked with the Jews and Mo, or Moses and Israel, and that he's working with the church. There's, there's different ways that he goes into the world. I would take you to Hebrews chapter 1. In times past, God has spoken through the prophets, right? But in these last days, he speaks to us in his son, Jesus Christ, okay? His very image, okay? But... Um, Contrary to replacement theology, dispensationalism teaches that after the rapture, that's 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, God will restore Israel as a primary focus of his plan. The first event at this time is the tribulation. After the rapture comes the tribulation. You can read about that in the book of Revelations, chapters 6 through 19. The world will be, judging, will be judged for rejecting Christ, while Israel is prepared through the trials of the Great Tribulation for the second coming of Messiah. Then, when Christ does return to the earth, not in the clouds, not in the air, but to the earth, at the end of the Tribulation, Israel will be ready to receive Him. The remnant of Israel who survived the Tribulation will be saved, and the Lord will establish His kingdom on this earth with Jerusalem as its capital. With Christ reigning as King, Israel will be the leading nation and representatives from all nations will come to Jerusalem to honor and worship the King, Jesus Christ. The church will return with Christ and will reign with Him for a literal thousand years. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 5. Coming back to preterism, out of this passage, assuredly I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away. Preterists usually point to the passage in Jesus' Olivet Discourse, or in Luke's case here, his Temple Discourse, to bolster their argument. After Jesus describes some of the end times happenings, he says, Truly I tell you, and here's the quote, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Okay, Matthew 24, Luke 21. The preterist, the person who looks at everything finished in history, 
takes this to mean that everything Jesus speaks of here in Luke 21 had to have occurred with one generation of his speaking. And biblically, you can make a case that a generation is 20 years, 30 years, 70 years, but not past the lifetime of a person, but until they're born and of adult age and they start a new generation. And so what they're saying here is the predators would say, all the stuff that we read about Jesus' return, the resurrection and, and fulfillment of the kingdom of God had to have happened within 20, 30 to 70 years, okay, of, of what Jesus was speaking there of the destruction of Jerusalem. And I mentioned it last week, right here in chapter 21, as Jesus is speaking from the Temple Mount, it'll be 38 years to 70 AD, okay? 32 AD, he's crucified, 38 more years will come 70. So people will say that's what he was speaking about, the destruction of Jerusalem, it's all finished, it's all over. Um, having occurred within one generation of his speaking, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, or that's what they call judgment day preterists. I'm, a, I'm making a point here, so it's all going to come together. The problems with preterism are many, okay? For one thing, God's covenant with Israel is everlasting, okay? Jeremiah, in chapter 31, verses 33 through 36, says that he will, these promises endure forever to Israel, not the church. And there will be a future restoration of Israel, a future restoration of Israel means that first there has to be a dissipation, okay, before there's a restoration, much as we read about, again, in Romans chapter 11. You read that in Isaiah 11, 12. Uh, how many? 700 years before Jesus and Paul. The apostle Paul warned against those who, in like Hymenaeus and Philetus, teach falsely that the resurrection has already taken place and they destroyed this faith of some. People are saying, oh, you missed the boat, right? In 2 Timothy chapter 2, 17 and 18, he makes this argument to Timothy. We see it also in the book of Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians, every chapter ends with the promise of the return of Jesus Christ because they have been told they missed the boat, the, that they, the, the rapture happened and you missed it. And he says, no, 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 no. Great, great book to read, again, as commentary on this. And Jesus' mention of this generation here in this verse, 32, should be taken to mean the generation is to alive to see. Now, this is where we do context, okay? We look at what he was saying, who he was saying it to, when he was saying it. You have to back up. What did he just teach on? The parable of the, the trees, the fig tree and all the trees. He's speaking about the nations. And when all the nations are about to bud, come to fruit, it's all going to come to fruit. It's harvest time. When that happens, we're there, okay? The mention of this generation should be taken to mean the generation is alive to see the parable of the trees, the sign of of verses 25 through 31, as described by his parable of the trees. And finally, thank you for your patience. I wanted to write this down because I'm likely to get it confused if I don't. A little dive into one of the words in your Bible. This generation, okay, will by no means pass away until all these things take place. All these things. Wars, rumors of wars, Jerusalem is destroyed, the sun, earth, the moon are shaken, the powers in heaven are shaken. This is not going to happen, that generation, until all those things take place, then this generation will see these things happen, okay? Now, Jesus was not referring to the people there at the temple that day, or his own generation and that of the disciples but to the generation that sees these things. They asked for a sign. This will be the sign. Perplexity and confusion and everything just falling. The heavens being shaken. When you see that, that's when it's coming. Um, these signs, the very end. This is God's promise that he will not prolong what Jesus is calling the great 
tribulation, okay? What he's saying here is that when you see these things happen, everything is falling apart. Don't worry. <laughs> the end is near. We're almost there. <laughs> Look up. Your redemption goes nigh. Every time you see something in the news and it freaks you out and it breaks your heart and it drives you to your knees and you're in prayer and, and everything that's going on, just maybe hold this little thought. If this is it, we don't know. We don't know the day. We don't know the hour. But we do know the signs. And if this is it, do you realize that we are seven years away from the millennium? That should rock your world. As bad as it could be, we're almost there. And we don't go through the tribulation, right? But we could be so close that tomorrow, if it started, seven years from today, we'd be gathering in the millennium with Jesus, okay? So this is kind of what's going on. There's a strong case to be made that Jesus meant, by the word generations, uh, the Jewish people okay, by this term, um, and meaning that the Jewish people would not perish, okay, despite all the terrible things that would come through the diaspora, 2,000 years of being scattered around the world without a nation, they're not going to perish. The great tribulation, they're not going to perish because God's not done with them. He's doing work with them. They would not perish despite terrible persecution and all the genocides that have been perpetrated against them until this is all fulfilled. So this is one of the strongest statements in the Bible that Jesus makes that God is not done with Israel. If you take it literally, grammatically, Jesus is saying they're going to be here. In fact, they're not only going to be here, they're going to go through the tribulation. Okay? Now, this word generation, genea, is the Greek, genea. And it has three different interpretations or meanings as you go through the Bible or ancient Greek literature. Genea means three things. It could mean the descendants of a common ancestor. That would fit the Jewish people, all descendants from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Noah, on up the tree, Adam. Or a set of people born at the same time. We talk about the baby boomers, Gen X, the millennials, Generation Z, right? We call them all these gens, generations, right? It's kind of bizarre how they figure out the starting line. It's like if you're born on the wrong day, you're, you're one of these or you're one of those. And we are all part of a generation. It doesn't matter if you are one of the babies in this room or you're one of the oldest people in this room, we're a part of this current generation, this time set in history. That'd be another way of determining Ganea. Um, and the, the, the period of time that's occupied by the people of that time. That, that could be the word generation. But here, as we look at what he's saying, the Jews are going to be around. These people, this generation, are going to see these things after, after, all these things take place. He's not done with the Jews. The presence of the Jewish people, the fig tree budding, bearing fruit amongst the nations, didn't happen at the temple that day, didn't happen in the next 38 years, certainly didn't happen after the destruction of the temple, and they were scattered for 2,000 years. It didn't happen until May 14, 1948, when they became a nation and started bearing fruit amongst all the nations, the fig tree amongst the trees, okay? That is the sign of the kingdom of God. If you take this text and break it open, all that to be said, why am I going there? Because this is something that you need to be on guard for. I know personally of two pastors and two churches here in southern Idaho that I've had fellowship with for years, broke bread with for years, prayed for, encouraged, shared ministry for years, and they have taken off, left 
Orthodox Christianity and followed in the way of preterism and replacement theology. Now, not only is that sad for me and these people I know and love who have gone that way, but when a pastor does that, the whole church is affected by it. And it causes division and splits in the church. It destroys the testimony of Jesus Christ in the community. And people's lives are, are, are broken. I mean, uh, serious broken. And I don't want us to find ourselves there. That's why I've taken the time to break this out for you. Even though I know it's a bit chewy, it's kind of college level stuff, big $5 words, all that. It's a real thing and we need to be very careful. One of the worst things of all about this, and as I've been trying to reason through with these churches, these pastors and all these things, is to find out that as these, these usually these pastors, they get hooked into this by, they go onto the internet and they start studying all these esoteric, greater knowledge, deeper knowledge, intellectual things. And next thing you know, they're going down the rabbit hole. And they're, they're, they're starting to spiritualize and allegorize and leave the simple word and try to get it all fancy, okay? And it's, it's super tempting. You, you need to know this because the vanity that comes with thinking that you have superior knowledge is powerful. In the early church, it was known as Gnosticism. Gnosis being knowledge. There was a group within the early church that said, oh, we've got the higher level knowledge. If you just come follow us, we can tell you about the true Jesus and the real way. And there's more. And I would just tell you, if there's more and I have to have a big IQ to process all this, what happens to all the simple people that God created in his image that are never going to be able to Go down that rabbit hole if they wanted. They don't count. They're not important. They're not good enough to make it to heaven because you got to know this stuff if you want in. you got to have the secret passcode. So this is something to be very, very careful about. Just take the word literally, simply. you find you won't go wrong. I know when I was a new Christian and I'm reading the word, there's stuff in there. I'm like, I'm not sure what this means. I'm kind of confused. And then I started involved, getting involved with Bible studies and pretty soon, nobody else got ready for the Bible study. I would show up, and I'm so into the Word that I became the default leader because I was the only one that read the chapter that week. <laughs> you probably have been to a Bible study like that. You might have been one of the two people, ready or not ready, prepared or not, right? It doesn't really matter. The point is that as this went on, I, I'm hungering for the Word. I'm digging in, I'm studying, I'm getting in deep. But there's a couple dangers that come with that, and one of them is you're going to start finding yourself tempted to go this way go that way find something Ooh, this is neat nobody ever saw this before nobody ever told me this before this is so cool i just found something that's been hidden in the bible for thousands of years and god showed it to me ah bantaita as we say in the philippines watch out that's bad if you find yourself in a place where you think you're the you know the new guru I can almost guarantee you, <laughs> you're not. Right? I just that, that, that's something that, you know, I, at eight years old, I knew two stellar theological truths. I mean, I was way beyond my years. At eight years old, I knew there's a God, and I'm not him. <laughs> and I, I, that one wasn't hard. I figured it out as a kid. Take the word. Test it. Live it. See if it doesn't prove itself out. That's why not only do I believe it, not only do I read it, not only do I apply it to my life, but I endorse it to you. That's why I come into the pulpit because I've watched 30 years of my life. This is the truth. It proves itself over and over and over again. But keep it simple. Finally, we've got to close up this morning. But take heed to yourselves. Verse 34 lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, 
and the cares of this life. And that day come on you unexpectedly, for it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. So just a minute ago, Jesus says these things are going to happen after the sun and the moon and the stars all start falling down, blah, 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 blah. And now he's saying you're not going to know when it's happening. He's moved back into a present, near future understanding of this. How do we prepare? How do we posture ourselves? How do we position ourselves in light of the times? Well, this is how you don't do it. Carousing dissipation, surfeiting, just feeding your flesh, your lust, your desires, just building up your kingdom. That's not how you do it. Carousing and thinking somehow that you're on top of the world. Drunkenness. Altered states of consciousness. And these can come through all kinds of things. Of course, almost everybody's mind jumps to drugs and, and alcohol. <laughs> but don't be so sure that caffeine and sugar don't do it too. Be careful when something is controlling you to the point that it becomes your God. It gets between you and God. I see these t-shirts. They're cute. They're funny. And I get it. But it's like, uh, you know, I don't do anything till I get my coffee in the morning. I would encourage you to get the Word of God first. Go to Him in prayer. Read your Bible and pray every day. If you get a cup of coffee, great. But if you don't, is that going to ruin your devotion? I'm all cranky, so I didn't do my... I couldn't get the coffee pot broke, so I haven't talked to God today. That could be as bad as drugs and alcohol. Drunkenness, carousing, drunkenness, uh, and the cares of this life. Just back in chapter 8, Jesus told the parable of the sower and the seed and the soils. And you know the third soil? The seed that fell amongst the weeds. It says that the cares of this world, the riches, the pleasures of this world choked that seed out it couldn't produce fruit too much competition with all the other things in the world we need to be really careful about the cares of this life and i'll tell you what you know as a, as a flaming sinner when i first came to know jesus it was easy for me to identify the stuff that i needed to knock off that wasn't hard right i mean pretty obvious the bible's clear on all these things that you shouldn't be doing but as you start walking with the Lord 10, 15, 20, 30 years, all of a sudden you start looking and it's like, man, I don't drink, I don't chew, I don't go with the girls that do. I stopped all the bad stuff. But wait a minute. The cares of this world could keep me? What are my cares? I care about you. I care about this church. I care about the gospel. I care about the mission of the church on earth. I care about all these things. But even that, if it comes between you and a personal relationship with God, can choke out fruit in your life. You, you have to, I mean, go home and maybe never come back again, but go home and get with God. Make sure that you've got that solid. I don't know how to get with God. Pray. Get on your knees and talk to Him. And talk to Him until you hear Maybe talk and shut up and then hear. Listen, I'm serious. Sing when you're driving, in the car, wherever. Worship Him. Serve Him. Make your life about God. And even if, you know, what, I'm sorry, Pastor, I was absent last Sunday. I was at home. I just got into my devotion before I came to church, and I got so fired up, I couldn't put the Bible down for four hours. Hallelujah. You and Jesus, okay? You're going to find a balance in all that, but most of us are way on the other side. Where did I put my coffee? Can't, you know. Make sure that you've got yourself in that position. For it will come 
that day will come on you unexpectedly, will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Worship team, come on up. Watch, therefore. That's what we're doing this morning. We're watching. What are the signs? When will it happen? God has given us plenty of information to be ready. Do we know when? Not, no, we really don't for sure. We've got a lot of signs that indicate it could happen now. This generation that's going to see all these things is with us. It's one of the nations. It's one of the trees. It's budding. There's fruit coming. We're about there. Watch. It could happen any minute now. Watch, therefore, and pray always. Pray without ceasing. Just have this little dialogue going on between you and God. You know, you see somebody going down the street doing something silly. You go, huh, did you see that? That was silly. You're like, are you talking to yourself? No, I'm not talking to myself. I'm talking to God. Remember when these, these little uh, phones in your ear came out? I don't know. What do they call those things? I don't even have one. But, huh? What do they call those? They get, they're phones. In earbuds or whatever, and people are talking on the phone. Bluetooth. Remember when that first happened? Maybe it still happens to you. But I see people walking down the street talking to themselves. What are they talking? People are talking to them. I mean, we flipped out. It's like all of a sudden, it's like they come up, they say something, you start talking to them. I'm not talking to you. And I'm like, yeah, it sounded like you were talking to me. We're the only two people here. Talk to God. When's the last time you got accused of talking to God? Are you talking to God again? Not a bad thing to be known for. Watch. Pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. I know I'm going a little long. I'm, I'm going to read a passage out of 1 Thessalonians. It's a long passage, but I pray it's going to be an encouragement to you. So bear with me beginning at chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly, do you? You yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you... Brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath. We don't have to worry about the tribulation. We don't have to worry about all these things. He's taken us home. God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. And if you want a homework assignment, go home and continue reading the rest of chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians. It tells you to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. Don't quench the spirit. Don't despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. A whole checklist of how to live in these last days. And finally, verse 37, And in the daytime, he, Jesus, was teaching in the temple. Teaching, not just preaching. We preach the gospel. We preach the kingdom of heaven. We preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. We preach that Jesus Christ died for your sins. But once a person has accepted and received Jesus Christ as Lord, confessed that he's their Savior, believes that like Jesus they will be raised from the dead. Then there's a bunch of teaching that goes on for the rest of your life. 
This is what Jesus was doing that morning, teaching, explaining the Scriptures. And in the daytime, He was teaching in the temple, wide open, not afraid, not ashamed, just laying it out there. This is what God's Word says. But at night, He went and stayed on the mountain called Olivet. As many of the pilgrims for Passover were doing, just like Joseph and Mary when they came to Bethlehem, there was no room in the inn. When you got a million-something people come into town, the hotels are full. You're camping. And Jesus and the disciples would go up on the Mount of Olives and the Olives Groves and spend the night there. But verse 38, then early in the morning. What time do you like to get up? I don't know what it is, but early in the morning to me is like one hour before I get up. Just whatever you get up. You get up at four, that's three for you. You get up at nine, that's three for you. <laughs> then, early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Okay? I pray that that's what we came here this morning to do, was to hear what Jesus has to say, what the Spirit has to say to his churches. Now, I'm just a man. I'm a flawed man. I'm I'm a simple man. I, I get things wrong. And I've dug into some topics here that you may take exception with me. That's okay. I didn't come here to hear me. I came here to hear Jesus. Anything that we have said that misrepresents him or his word, Lord Jesus, strike it from the record right now. Just put a blank spot in our brain where that was. But if you have spoken something true this morning to our hearts, if your spirit has revealed a truth that we need to deal with this morning, I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would give us the unction to get her done, to obey, to do what you've put in front of us. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you've not left us as orphans, but that you have come and given us of your Holy Spirit, that we can be filled with you, filled with your word, filled with your truth, filled with your joy, filled with the hope that you have given us a roadmap to heaven. And that not only are we heaven bound, but there's room. There's room in the bus for others. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would take these words that you've given us and then you would break them and bless them and distribute them to the world, to everybody in this room, as we would go out amongst our co-workers, our family, the community, that we would just bring these loaves, these fishes, this light, this hope to our community. Lord Jesus, we know that not only have you given us this commission, but Lord, you've also empowered us to complete it in Jesus' name. So Lord Jesus, we go out now, therefore, to your glory. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. To learn more about the Springs Calvary Chapel, please visit our website at www.thespringscalvarychapel.org. Join us in person at the Springs in Hebron, Idaho, or here on the podcast as we worship together in spirit and in truth.